I'm going to move forward a bit. Hope you don't mind, Tom. You're fine. You're fine. Oh, I was going to say, I move forward, he moves away. What's that? I No, it's my spitting distance. Tom's within spitting distance now. <laughs> Good morning. We are in uh, Acts chapter 11 still. I mentioned last week that for the next two weeks, Lord willing, we're going to be in uh, in the same text we were in last week, and so we will return there today because I believe there are two uh, real important nuggets of truth within the text that actually fit into the flow. They're not outside the flow of the text, but they're important nuggets that we should mine a little bit more and consider and wrestle with and try to discover and and um, I think that we will find that they are encouraging and they will exhort us and and uh, and the Spirit hopefully will use them in our lives to help us grow and change. But before we start, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will start our study this morning. Help us, Lord, as we continue in the text we were in last week, that you will be glorified by this, that we'll have wisdom and insight uh, from your word, and that your Spirit will be at work in all of our lives, softening our hearts, reminding us of the truth, reminding us of who you are. And Lord, I pray that the result will be that we will worship you and love you and glory in you and be satisfied with you especially in contrast to all those who are seeking vain satisfaction upstairs this morning. Uh, you have food that, that they know nothing about, and you have graciously allowed us to see it and taste and see that you are good. And so, Lord, I pray that you will uh, remind us of that again this morning, and you will be glorified as a result. In your name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so we are in uh, Acts chapter 11 this morning. We looked at it last week, starting in verse 19. We're going to read the entirety of the text through verse uh, 26, and then we're going to go back to what we want to look at this morning. So starting in verse 19, now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, <clears throat> speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain steadfast. I'm sorry, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The text we looked at last week. We're going to focus only on one little phrase in the entirety of this text this morning because I want to spend some time unpacking it before we get into the text. Let me ask you a, a, a couple of questions. How was your week this week? How was your time? How was your week? How was your life this week? You don't have to answer it out loud. I just want you to think about it. How was it at work? How was it at home? How was it in every way you could possibly think about it? What was it like? And I want to expand beyond that. I want to ask you, because this week was probably pretty easy to think about. There's probably a few things that really stand out to you this week. Let's expand it out. Today is the 1st of March. How was last month for you? That may be a little bit harder to think about because it starts disappearing into the fog of time. How was your month last month? At work, at home, with family, with friends, your health, whatever it may be. 
Let's expand it out even further. From February to February, how was how last year? How'd it go? From your perspective, work, family, all those categories. How was your life for this last year, February to February? And then to really probe deeply into the fog of, of time, as it were, however old you are, just a little over a week ago, I turned 61. So I had 61 years to think about it. Jim, we won't even ask you how old you are. Uh, <laughs> I like picking on Jim. <laughs> What's that? 30? You're 30. <laughs> dirt. Hold this dirt. Got it. <laughs> but you'll think over through the fog of your life. How's your life been? I'll bet you when we talk about your whole life, there have been a lot of twists and turns, hasn't there been? I suspect for all of us, we would never as a child have thought we'd be where we are today in any number of categories, right? Am I correct? In any number of categories, I would have never dreamed as a kid that I'd be a pastor, for example. I never thought as a kid I'd ever be married. Of course, I didn't want to as a kid. I never thought all sorts of things. But the intricacies of the twists and turns of life are, are intriguing, aren't they? And how we are brought to where we are. Certainly at some level, we are, at some level, the product of all the events of our lives, right? I think it's a, more of a minor level because we really ultimately are a product of whether we're in Christ or not. Correct? And they define all of that. But it is interesting when we think back on our life, there are certainly... Many, many, probably multitude of events that weren't by our plan, weren't by our design, even at an insignificant level. If we had it our way, it would never have gone that way, right? You have any of those? I mean, I, I think of Ken. I think of Ken with a router, but we won't go there today. I, I haven't brought it up in a long time, Ken. You prompted my thinking last Monday night. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting how the twists and turns of life come into our lives and they're outside of our control and they have dramatic effects, don't they, some of them? Some of them not very dramatic, but some of them really dramatic changes in the direction of our life, don't we? Do you ever sit around and ask yourself this question? Well, why, why is this happening to me? You ever ask yourself that question? I mean, it is, it is the question of humanity at some level. One of the questions, one of the major questions of humanity. Why is this happening to me? Got to add those last two words in there, right? That, that is the ongoing question that seemingly never is what? Answered. But it is. It really is. In fact, I would argue it is definitively answered. Now, I know you guys have all been coming to church and you ladies have been coming to church long enough that you know the answer, right? Generally speaking, the answer is, why is all these things happening to me? Answer, God's sovereignty, right? Or if you want to make it even simpler, God, right? I mean, it's an easy answer, isn't it? And it's not a wrong answer. It's not a complete answer, but it is the right answer. 
And this morning, we're going to probe a little bit further than the answer, God's sovereignty. That is, we're going to try to skin it out a little bit more. All right? Does that make sense? Because I think if we leave it just at God's sovereignty, what we'll end up with is most likely mere fatalism, won't we? That's where we'll end up. And I think there's something much more robust than just leaving it there. We'll never let go of that, but to skin it out more, flesh it out more with a more clear and complete teaching of the scriptures, I think it becomes really powerful. The, the text we want to look at this morning is the very first verse we read. And the very first verse says, again, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but the Jews, or except the Jews. So, again, I mentioned it last week. What we have that I want to focus on this morning is this little phrase, or a little statement. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. A couple things. Firstly, background-wise, what 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 Luke is doing here is he's saying everything that's going on right now is because of persecution of Stephen, right? It's really clear to see. So there's this link, this dramatic link from chapter 11 to chapter 6 and 7, correct? Very dramatic. 6, of course, is what? Does anyone remember what 6 is all about? What's that? Yes, but more specifically, the deacons, right? Stephen of which is one of the chosen deacons, right? And it's all because of the conflict uh, between the Hellenized Jews and the and the natural Hebrew Jews. So we have we have this 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 conflict. Deacons are chosen. Stephen is the, seemingly the most preeminent one. He's at least the one that's most strongly identified. The list is there, but once the list is given, he becomes front and center, doesn't he? And and so he comes front and center, and he's really ministering, isn't he? My goodness, we don't see him before chapter 6. Obviously, he was ministering before chapter 6 because they see he's full of faith, right? So he's obviously ministering, and he's glorifying Christ pre-chapter 6 at some level. It's identified by the people. He is established as one of the deacons, and he begins to minister as a deacon and minister effectively and powerfully, right? Now, did you notice the first word I just used for description? What was the first word? effectively. And you all said, oh yeah, yeah. It's interesting you all agreed with me. Because it wasn't really effective, was it? What was the result? He's dead. <laughs> right? He's stoned. He's dead. Ah, but you're right. It was effective, wasn't it? It's really important we get this because Luke, I think, is specifically wanting the reader to pause and recognize this. First, and it's easy to see it, what's going on in Acts chapter 11 is a direct result and a direct connection to Stephen's death. But more importantly, it's to Stephen's ministry. Isn't it? It absolutely is. The reaction to Stephen is because he was such a nice guy. The reaction to Stephen is because he was caustic. The reaction to Stephen is because he's obnoxious. Well, no, it's none of that, is it? The reaction to Stephen that rises immediately is because of what? The proclamation of what? The truth, the gospel. Isn't it? The reaction is because the truth, the gospel, is being proclaimed. Now, that's really important. 
The persecution doesn't arise because Stephen is killed. The, the persecution arises because he's alive. And it's not even because he's alive, but it's because of what his life is doing, right? Because it's proclaiming Christ. It's proclaiming the gospel. And that's exactly what Luke wants to remind us of when he says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Now why is this so important, this this immediate phrase? Here's why it's really important. Believe it or not, the the idea shows up many times in the scriptures. It does. What idea? The idea of why is this happening, now oftentimes we will say, to me, but sometimes it's more global, right? Why is blank happening? Does that make sense? Like, what person didn't ask that question on 9-11 in America, right? What person didn't say, why is this happening? Everybody was like, what in the world? What's going on? Why is this happening? We remember, right? And did the world have any answers? Oh, they had answers, but it was really... All what? Vertical or horizontal answers? It was all horizontal answers, right? And missing the more important and most important vertical answer that explains the horizontal problems. Doesn't it? But it's, it, it's, it's just this common reoccurrence that people oftentimes don't get. Let me give you a biblical example of why people don't get it. Philippians chapter 1. Way long time ago, 12 years ago or so, we went through a study in Philippians. Now, most of you probably don't remember the process through the book of Philippians, and that's okay. But it's interesting. Most likely, the book of Philippians was written by Paul, at least partially, in response to a letter that Paul received while he was in prison. He received a letter from the Philippian church while he was in prison, and he's writing a response letter, just the way he wrote and how he's communicating, make it sound very clearly like he's responding to something. What are you responding to? Well, you'll notice if you ever look at you don't have to turn it now, but if you look at Philippians 1, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me have rather turned out for the advancement of the gospel. Which begs the question, right? Rather than what? Doesn't it? Rather than what? It's just this weird hanging thing out there just saying, I want you to know these things have happened rather for the furtherance of the gospel. That's one of the reasons why, why most people think that he's responding to a letter he received. Most likely, we don't have a copy of the letter, but most likely the letter he received said something like this, Paul, we're confused. We're really, really confused. And we're really, really scared. Here's why. Because you were traveling all over the known world preaching the gospel. People were getting saved. You were traveling all over the known world. You were planting churches. And Christianity was spreading. And now, where's Paul? He's in prison. Which means Paul can't what? He can't travel. He can't preach the gospel all over the world, all over the known world, can he? He can't plant churches, can he? He can't, he can't minister to people wherever he is, helping them grow in Christ, can he? Right? What's that? 
Yes, he ministers where he is, but he can't be doing what he has been doing, right? He can't be doing what he has been doing. Most likely, the, the Philippian church, this infant church that has recently been saved and established, is writing to Paul and saying, Paul, is this thing called Christianity stillborn? Is it, is it dead? Is it over this quickly? What is that? That's nothing more than, Paul, why is this happening? Isn't it? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to you, and why is it secondarily happening to us? Right? That's exactly what it is. And Paul writes, says, no, you, you missed the point. You missed a huge point. And you can almost hear, if I may say this, you can almost, I'm not saying it's there, it's not, but you can almost hear him saying, remember Stephen? That's almost what you can hear. Because Paul goes on and explains how God is at work, and God's bigger than Paul, right? And God's bigger than Paul's global ministry that he had before. And God's, God's after something, right? Or to go to an Old Testament passage. Again, you know this passage. Joseph gets thrown into a pit by his brothers. And then he gets sold into slavery, and his dad's told he's dead. And then he gets into trouble with Potiphar, right? And it wasn't his fault, was it? Whose fault was it? It's his wife's fault, right? It's, it's Potiphar's wife's fault. She lies. Why? Because she's full of lust for Joseph. And so he ends up in prison. Did he deserve to be in prison? No. And he's forgotten there for a long time. Eventually he gets out. I'm just shortening the story here. Eventually he gets out. And once he gets out, through a series of events, right? Through a series of events, he becomes really high in the, in the Egyptian government, doesn't he? And while he's really high in the Egyptian government, he starts this, he starts this program to do what? To, to save food up for the coming famine that God had promised, right? Had revealed to him. And so eventually his brothers and his dad gets hungry and they come down to get food, right? Long story short. Then eventually he reveals himself, doesn't he? And then his father dies. And his brothers come to him because they're fearing because what they did to him way back in the... In the, in the past, that he's going to kill him, have him killed, now the dad's gone, and they lie, as far as we can tell, it's just a lie, that he, they make up and say, before he died, he said to take care of us. And Joseph's response is he does what? He weeps, doesn't he? Why is he weeping? Because they don't get it. And then he talks to them, he says, no, you missed the whole point. You meant these things for evil toward me, right? But what? God meant them for good. Right? The twists and turns of life, aren't they? The twists and turns of life, and many of them unforeseen. And Joseph says, they, God meant it for good. Or to put it a different way, God's always first cause. Correct? He's always first cause. You may do your things, other people, like the people who killed Stephen, 
and on and on, and all the persecution that came after it, you may mean those things for evil, and you, they obviously did, but God means it for good. And here we have in chapter 11, verse 19 again, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Antioch, speaking the word of them, uh, I'm sorry, uh, speaking, I'm sorry, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. That's verse 19. What are we trying to get to here? It's very intriguing that Luke would throw this, this verse in there, connecting it back to Stephen and his persecution for several reasons. And these reasons are the very important part of this text that you don't find except for hinted at in this text. It's very, to go back to where we started, certainly we would, as good Christians, would say it's because of God's sovereignty. But in saying it's because of God's sovereignty, or go back to what Joseph said, you meant them for evil, but God meant them for good, to leave them there is to miss the point, because it begs the question, to say, it, well, it's all because of God's sovereignty, it begs the question, to, and the question is this, why? Doesn't it? For what purpose? Right? For what purpose? I mean, just to say, well, God's sovereign is, I mean, that's a micro step, if I may be blunt. It's a micro step away from Islam. It's just a micro, it's a micro step away from deism. Well, it's sovereign. It's true, isn't it? Yes, it's absolutely true. But we must not leave it there because there's purpose. There's important, and we see it hinted at in Joseph's story, don't we? You meant these things for evil, but God meant them. In other words, God caused them, right? God caused them, God meant them. He's first caused, he caused them, but Joseph doesn't leave it there. Well, God's sovereign. He says God meant them for good. It's really important. Now, it's just a hint, but it's the hint that says what? He's after something, correct? He's in pursuit of something, correct? Isn't he? And we're going to talk a little more about the Joseph thing and talk about what he's in pursuit of because we miss the point. Oftentimes we think, well, he was in pursuit of something good. Yeah, what, what's the good? Well, the people would have food and live. And that's not the right answer. Because even if those people who get food and live, what's going to happen to them? They're going to die. <laughs> They're all going to die. So to say God is sovereign and he meant it for good and say it's just good that they live a little bit longer, it's kind of futile, isn't it? Kind of empty, kind of meaningless, isn't it? I agree, it is. And so we need to wrestle with what is the sovereignty all about? What is his in control of these things, first cause of all these things all about? What's the purpose? And we're going to be obviously general, but I think the scriptures give us a really good indication of what that good, Joseph, Stephen, Paul, and any number of other biblical characters, by way of illustration, we could turn to, what that, what that good is that he's targeting. We find ourselves regularly with events that transpire in our lives, they unfold in our lives, and we scratch our head and say, what in the world? 
right? Let me tell you a personal story. And I've said this for many years. I've told this story for many years. And it was about eight or ten years ago, it started dawning on me that the story is absolutely incomplete. But yet, I share, I've sh numerous times shared this story. And people are always, quote, really encouraged by the story. But it's woefully inadequate because the most important part is left out. So please indulge me as I share my story with you, okay? Because it's intriguing to me. It may bore you, but that's okay. When I turned 18, I, I, I was hating my job. I was hating everything about work. And, and I, I'd been working at McDonald's, just to give you an idea. No offense. I've been there for two and a half years. I had no desire to advance in a career at McDonald's. That's why, don't take offense, if you want to advance in McDonald's, it's great. I had no desire. So for me, it was a dead-end job. I felt like I was going nowhere. And so my mom talked to a friend who got me a job working at uh, University of, let's see, what was it called? Uh, Northwestern. Northwestern University in downtown Chicago in the orthotics prosthetic department. That sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? You know what it was? I saw, well, it's all about artificial limbs and, and prosthetics. Uh, and orthotics is, is uh, you know, if, if you need help with something that gives you, like, orthotic devices, that type of thing for feet and hands. Um, it sounded like a glorious job. You know what it was? Sorting nuts and bolts. And washers. And it was the students that were learning how to, in the, their doctoral work, were learning how to build orthotics and prosthetics. And then all these people with, with, that, that were in agreement, usually lower income people, would come in and they would, they would be experimented on with orthotics and prosthetics that, they would, be, that would be built for these people so that the, these doctoral students could learn how to do it. And then when they'd finished the project, well, when they needed they, when they needed the nuts and bolts and stuff, they'd come to me and I'd sort of I'd give them the the products that they needed. After they built, they'd bring it back and I had to take it all apart again and put it all in the bins. And then they'd come and get more stuff and I'd just all day long, all day long, talk about a boring job. And uh, so I I mean it was a month and I was I wanted to I pulled my hair out. See that's why I'm the way I am today. And uh, so I said to my mom, I said, I can't do this anymore. This is driving me crazy. And she said, have you prayed about it? And I said, no. She said, why don't you pray about it? And so I started praying about it. And, and I prayed about it that, that afternoon for a bit. And I was talking to her before dinner. And she said, I got an idea. Why don't you call Roy Tanner up at Fathom Ranch, the camp I'd go to in summer times, and, and see if they have any work available. I said, okay. So I called, and he said, yeah, come on up. And so I said to mom, he actually gave me a job. And she said, well, go. I said, I don't have to wait. It's 100 miles away. She said, take the car. Now I have a car. <laughs> so I put my stuff in the car, and I didn't realize at that point in time she was giving me the car until I was leaving, and she gave me the title as I was walking out the door. That's when I realized she gave me the car. Now it wasn't much of a car, but it was a car. And uh, I drove up there, and I got up, and, and he got me situated in a place to stay. And he said, tomorrow I'll, uh, we'll start work. I said, great. 
Well, we never had an agreement on anything. And so I started working, and I wasn't getting paid. It, it never dawned on him that I was doing it for full-time work. He thought I was just coming for a little while to, to have some free time. Well, six months later, I hadn't left, and I hadn't gotten paid. And uh, one of the cooks found out about it, and she said, how much do they pay you? I said, I'm not getting paid. Well, she knew the board members really well, and she told them. And, and you can imagine what happened when the next board meeting. Next thing you know, I'm getting paid. Woohoo! $3,600 a year. <laughs> That's 1978. It was to me, but it wasn't at that era. It was to me, though. Um, and I worked there for five years. And I eventually worked my way up to, ready, brace yourself, $4,600 for the year. And then I had this idea because the youth pastor on the camp came to camp regularly. And he was talking to me. He said, hey, Steve, I'm organizing a trip of people who, seniors primarily, going to a place up in New York called Word of Life Bible Institute to check out the school. You want to come? I said, I've never been to New York before. He said, why don't you come with? I said, okay. I talked to my boss. He said, sure, go. So I went for this trip. And I get there, and I was, like, amazed because they were studying the Bible, and they were learning the Bible, and people seemed to be excited about learning the Bible. And I was like, I want to be there. But the rules were, like, out of control. So I came home, and I went in to see the boss, my boss, Roy Tanner. And he said, so what do you think? I said, wow, was that amazing? I would love to go to that place. But I said, the rules, i got to think through that. that those rules are really serious. I'm not sure I can handle that. And, and I said, I'll tell you what. He said, so you think I'll go in this fall? I said, uh, I don't know. I'll have to think about it, but I will let you know if I'm going to go. That was my exact words. I'll let you know if I'm going to go. So as I went into summertime and was doing my job, I've been thinking about it, praying about it. I decided I didn't want to go live underneath all those rules. And so I decided I'm not going to go. Now, revert back to April, when I said to him, I'll let you know what, if I want to go. So I never bothered to tell him I wasn't going to go, because I told him I'd let him know if I'm going to go. So in August, middle of August, I went in to see him, and I said to him, so Roy, what's our plans for work this fall? He said, what are you talking about? So I was getting ready to make plans for all the things I'd have to accomplish, all my tasks I have to accomplish, big projects and all the rest. He said, what are you talking about? I said, the fall, work. What's our big project? So I can start planning them. And he said, I thought you were going on to school. I said, no, I told you I'm going to let you know if I'm going to go. He said, well, I already hired somebody to take your place. I said, what are you talking about? Who? He told me the name. I had never heard the name. I said, well, call them and tell them that the job's not available. He said, I can't do that. It's a married couple, and he's, he's already, he just sold his house to move here. Of course, one of my thoughts is, how much are you paying him? <laughs> That's a whole other issue. <clears throat> and he said, I, I, don't have, I don't have room for you and he, he both in the budget. So I lost my job. I walk out the door. I'm sitting on the stairs that go up top of the hill. I'm thinking, what do I do now? I have nothing. I have this car that's probably worth $200. I have like $300 in the bank. And that's all I have. 
And so I'm sitting there contemplating my life and trying to figure out what to do, figuring I'm probably going to have to move back home and find a job somewhere and work. And, and this girl by the name of Janet Pedraza is walking up the stairs. And she sees me sitting there. Obviously, I'm in not a happy state. And she said, what's wrong? And I tell her. And she said, have you prayed about it? <laughs> Familiar theme, isn't it? And I said, no, I haven't. <laughs> and she said, maybe you should pray about it. And she walked down, and I started praying about it. And then as I'm praying about it, I started thinking, well, I guess I go to Word of Life. I guess I could suffer through all the, all the rules for a year. And so I decided I was going to go to Word of Life. Remember, I got $300 in my, to my name. Well, I knew my friend Joe Shanky, who you guys have met, <clears throat> Many of you have. I knew he was going. So I called him and said, hey, how about we ride out together? I'll drive. Because he didn't have a way out yet. And he's like, you're going? I said, yeah, I'm going. He said, oh, that's great. So we drove out together. And so by the time we got out to New York, I was down to $200. And I, I signed up for being an RA, a resident assistant in the organization, in the school. And... Got accepted, which helps a little bit on it helped a little bit on the on the budget, but not much, but a little bit. And I got in line for registration, and when I walked into the financial aid, I said to the lady, I said, My name is Steve Hobbs, and I have two hundred dollars to my name. And that's all I have, and I have access to nothing else. I figured she was gonna send me right home. And she said, Well, let's pull up your bill and let's see what, what exactly you owe, and we'll see what we can work out. I said, Okay. She pulled out her file, she opens it up, and she looks at it, and she looks at me, and she looks down at it again, she looks at me again, and she looks down at the bill again, and she looks at me again. I remember like it was yesterday, and she said, Steve, your bill's all paid for. I said, what are you talking about? She said, it's, it says it's all paid for. I said, who paid it? Because nobody knew I was going, except for my, my mom and dad, and they'd already told me they weren't going to pay a cent. In fact, my dad was really ticked that I was going off to Bible college. He was really angry. And, of course, the, the, the camp manager knew, but the camp was almost as broke as they could be. So I know the camp, I, to this day, I don't know who paid for it. Or if it was just a clerical error on their part. I don't have a clue. Anyway, my whole year was paid for. So I got to stay for the whole year. In fact, I got money out of it because since my whole bill was paid for, all my, all my scholarship that was for being an RA wasn't needed for my bill, so I got money back from the money, whoever it was, that paid it in. They contacted that person, and that person said, whoever the person was, just give it to him and let him use it for living expenses, which was good because I gave them the 200 because of books I had to buy, so that 200 bucks was gone, and so I was actually washing underwear in the sink <laughs> using using. Uh, um, shampoo to wash my clothes. I had nothing. Just to give you a picture. So it was really helpful to get me through the year. In any case, <clears throat> long story short, I, 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 after I went to the second year as well, and that was paid for somehow as well, and then I went, uh, I decided I wanted no more Bible education, so I decided I was going to go down to Liberty University, the only school I knew. So I went down to Liberty because I didn't want to go to Moody because I wanted to go to a, a full school. If I'm going to go to school, I want to go to a full uh, university type thing instead of another Bible institute. So I went down to, down to Liberty, and uh, my bill wasn't paid for there. <laughs> but God was really merciful to me and gave me the opportunity to be an RA down there. And at that point in time, an RA gave full ride. 
tuition and and room and board. So I was able to stay for free. And the next year I did the same thing. And then I went to seminary. I signed up. I decided I wanted to go to seminary, so I signed up for seminary. And I, I went to my advisor, and he set up all my all my classes for me because I didn't know what I should take. He set up all my classes for me for my first year. I took first two semesters, all these classes, and they were great classes. I had a ball, learned a lot. And then he left, and he went uh, and got a job at Moody, and I got a new advisor. And I met with him right before the end of the school year, and he goes over my transcripts of all the coursework I took for the first year, both semesters, and he said, these are really good courses you took. I said, yeah, they were really excellent. He said, yeah, they're really good. Why'd you take them? That was my first clue there was a problem. <laughs> and I said, because my advisor, Dr. Sauer, told me to. That's the class he told me to take. And he said, what degree are you in again? I said, Master of Divinity. And he said, great courses. They have nothing to do with the Master of Divinity. None of them. I said, none of them? He said, none of them. Now, Ron Sauer left early that year, so he was already gone. So I couldn't go back to him and say, what in the world are you doing? Because my advisor said, when you come back next fall, you're starting at square one. I said, I'm going to go talk to the chair of the Bible department. Because he, he had become a good friend of mine. Dick Patterson was a good friend of mine. Uh, and so I went to, to Dick's office. I said, Dick, we need to talk. And he said, what? I said, here's the situation. I laid it out for him. He goes over to my advisor, gets, the, gets my file. He opens up. He looks at it. He says, Steve, these are great classes. I said, I heard that before. And he said, yeah, they're excellent. And some of them were his courses. He said, he said, but they do. He's right. They have nothing to do with your degree. And I said, so how do we change this? How can we substitute some of these classes for some of the classes that I took? He said, I don't see any way we can do that. I said, so you're saying that I'm starting out at square one next year? He said, yes. So I said, you're saying I've wasted a complete year of my life here at Liberty. He said, I wouldn't use the word wasted. Look at all the coursework you took. I said, yeah, but, but it, it, it set me back a year. He said, I'm sorry. There's nothing else I could do. I said, well, let me just ask you this question. I'm going to go to uh, the, one of the, the vice president that oversees the seminary and oversees finances as well. And I'm going to see if I can get something financially worked out because I paid money for that year. And so I went, and the guy wouldn't do a thing for me. Absolutely nothing for me. He said, well, you got the classes. You took the classes. You got the grade. What's the big deal? Like, serious? Really? And so I'm behind a year, plus all the money that I had to shell out for my apartment for the year, because I was living off campus. I was working two jobs uh, to pay for everything. And to pay for my education that, at that point. And then and I got three more years to go. And so I went home, went back to the camp, worked at the camp that, that summer, thinking about maybe I'll just forget the whole thing. But decided to go back. And I eventually graduated from seminary, got my degree. And my last semester, halfway through my last semester at, at Liberty, I got a phone call. Out of the blue, my phone rang. And it was the 
um, executive director of the Bible Institute, Word of Life Bible Institute. And he said, hey, Steve, i got a question for you. I said, sure, what's that, Stu? He said, um, you graduate this May, right? I said, yes. He said, well, would you be interested in a job? I said, what's the job? He said, dean of men. You'd be in charge of all the male students. And I said, I'd be really interested in that, but I also want to be able to teach. So if you can, if you can give me, this is really stupid of me in hindsight. If you want to let, if you want to give me classes so I could teach as well, then I'll be dean of men and I'll teach. He said, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you come up for interviews and we'll have you teach a class to the entire student body? I said, okay. I said, when? He said, next week. <laughs> Prepare a work, go to school. And as all the 800 level courses I'm taking and prepare for a class, I got to teach 10 hours worth of classes. I said, okay, I'll take it. And so I drove up there that weekend and I went through a week's worth of interviews and teaching and ministering to the students. And that Friday before I left, they offered me the job. And so I accepted the job. And of course, the rest is history, right? <clears throat> and then while I was there at Word of Life as Dean of Men and one of the professors, I met somebody. And that person was Ruth. And eventually, as you all know, things led one after another. And eight months later, we were married. And then in 2002, deciding it was time to leave, prayerfully, I didn't have to have anybody tell me anymore, I had to pray about it. <clears throat> I prayerfully decided it was time for me to be a pastor, and I started sending out resumes. And you know, it was interesting, for the longest time, not one single church would give me the time of day. Not one. And every one of them, the reasons were the same. You know what the reason was? No. What? Yeah. <laughs> no. Not because I want. It's because I worked at Word of Life. They want to hire me because they understood Word of Life as being a pretty, what? Legalistic organization, and so they didn't want to hire some pastor that's going to end up being some sort of legalist. And I kept saying to these people, I said, uh, you need to take me for the person I am, not for the organization I work for. Right? Evaluate me on who I am, not the organization I worked for. But they didn't want to take the risk. And then all of a sudden, I got a call, and somebody called me by the name of Warren. Uh, um, What's that? Bob Warren. Bob Warren. Thank you. I couldn't remember his first name. Bob Warren said, would you be interested in uh, preaching at church at our church some Sunday? We're, uh, we're without a pastor right now and we need some pulpit fill. I said, well, I'm going to be down that Sunday anyway. Sure. I said, how'd you get my name? And uh, somehow or other, uh, somebody in the church at that point in time knew my wife's sister. -in -law, or my wife's sister. And she had mentioned that, that I would potentially be available. So I came down and I preached, not thinking about being interested in Vincent at all. I was looking for Churchill. Frankly, I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to come to Pennsylvania. I'll just be honest with you. I wasn't even interested. I didn't send a single resume to any church in Pennsylvania. And one of the reasons, probably the biggest reason why is I didn't want to be that close to my wife's family. <laughs> so when I preached that, that Sunday... At Vincent, I wasn't thinking at all about, hey, maybe there's a church I could pastor. It wasn't even on my radar screen. And right after I preached that Sunday, the next week I had four churches hot after me. I mean, they were 
out of the blue, like, we want you to come. We, we like what we see. And I, I started asking questions, and these churches were all exploding in growth. They're just going places. And that week, Bob calls me back. And he says, hey, can we have a resume? And I was never, I was never one who would say, no, I'm not going to send you a resume. So I said, sure. I sent him a resume. Told Ruth about it. And I said, I really don't want to go to Pennsylvania. And she knew why. And then Bob called me back and says, can you come back down again in two weeks and preach? And I said, sure. It was early summer in June. I said, sure. And uh, no, actually, it was in, it was in uh, April. That's what it was. It was in April. I said, sure. And so I came down. And I preached again. Except this time, everyone in the church knew I was there with the potential that I could be candidating. And then Bob called me that week, and he said the, 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 the board would like, the search committee would like to consider you as a potential candidate. I said, okay. So we're going to send a bunch of questions to you, and, and you, know, you know the process. And I said, okay. And my mind is all about these other four churches. And I'm praying about this and praying about it, but I'm probably praying about those four churches. And God just couldn't take, he wouldn't let Vincent come off my heart. For a variety of reasons, I'm convinced, but he just wouldn't take Vincent off my, church, off my heart. And then, it was in June sometime, and the one church up in New York that was a n recent plant, and they were just exploding. They were like three years old, and they were up to over 100, and they were going gangbusters, never had a pastor yet. And they were going like crazy up in the Catskills. They called me and they said, we'd like you to be your pastor, our pastor. And I'd already been there and preached twice. And I said, can I get back to you tomorrow? And they said, sure. And I called them back tomorrow and I said, no. Why not? And I told them about you guys. And they said, why would you want to go to a church that's not growing? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just can't get Vincent off my heart, off my, out of my mind. And so, cutting it real short, here I am. Why do I show you, share that story with you? Because for the longest time I'd tell that story is, as, isn't it cool how God moves? I could have never thought that, that McDonald's and hating McDonald's would eventually lead me to Northwestern, which would eventually lead me to Phantom Ranch, which would eventually lead me to being forced out from my dream career at that point in time to going to college and then going to seminary and then getting shafted at seminary, which delays me by a year, which if I hadn't been delayed by the year, God's sovereignty, right? If I hadn't been delayed, all these steps, God is sovereignly at work, isn't he? If God hadn't delayed it for a year, I would not have been hired by Word of Life and I wouldn't have been hired by word of life. I would not have met Ruth. There would have been no hope in the world for me to have ever met Ruth. And if I hadn't met Ruth, I would not have ever found out about Vincent Baptist Church. And if I hadn't found out about Vincent Baptist Church, I wouldn't be ministering as a pastor here. Now, some of you may say, wow, wow, why did it work out that way? <laughs> why did it have to go that way? <clears throat> What's, but for the longest time, people would say, wow, what an interesting and encouraging Example of God's sovereign work. And it is, isn't it, at some level? But it misses the point. 
Is it God's sovereignty at work? Yes. But it misses the point. It doesn't answer the question, why? Does it? If I may just be as blunt as possible, ultimately, who cares? Who cares if I end up the rest of my life at, at McDonald's? Who cares if I ended up the rest of my life at, at Northwestern University sorting bolts and nuts and washers? Who cares if, if I end up at camp, working at camp the rest of my life? And on and on and on. What difference does it make, in other words? Right? Oh, it's God's sovereignty work. That's true, but why? Who cares? What's the point? What's the point about simply just God's sovereignty? Arbit almost as if it's arbitrary? There's something bigger going on. And the first hint we have, again, is Joseph, right? What does it say again? You meant these things for evil. And I'm not saying any, I'm not saying Ron Seller meant it for evil, what he did. I'm not saying that at all. Please don't miss it. I'm not saying that Roy Tanner, when he hired somebody else and I lost my job, he meant it for evil. I'm not saying that at all. These things, just, these things happen, right? Now, they happen by God's sovereignty, certainly. But Joseph said, you meant these things for evil, but God meant them for good. Which begs the question, what is good, right? Doesn't it? And God, I believe, argues that point. Because if you think about the scriptures as a historical redemptive story, which it is, if you think about it as a historical redemptive story, what do you have? Well, he meant it for good immediately for what? For so people could eat. I get it. That's what it is, right? So they wouldn't die of starvation. They'd have food to eat all over the world. But why? Why? Well, if you know the historical redemptive story, you know why. Did it have anything really ultimately to do with the Egyptians? No. Not at all. Why? Why did God, and for what purpose did God mean this for good? Well, if you know the historical redemptive story, you know that what is eventually going to happen is what? There's going to be a group of people that we call the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And they're eventually in 400 years going to come out of the Egypt, the, the, the slavery land, and they're going to wander and eventually end up 40 years later where? In the promised land. And what's the point of that? Because there's all sorts of God's sovereignty at work there, isn't it? Also for good. But they are eventually going to rise up, or, or, or arrive in the promised land. Why? Because ultimately, obviously, on one level, you have God as a, as a keeper of his promises, right? But when you remember that God is the keeper of his promises, his great promise is what? Genesis 3. What is it? He's going to send us a redeemer, right? Correct? And that is the good that, he, that Joseph's ultimately talking about. Is ultimately what's going to happen is there's going to be a redeemer. And that redeemer is going to what? It's going to be Jesus Christ. And he's going to save his people from, his, from their sins. Does that make sense? That's really important in light of the text this morning. That's really important. You see, ultimately we could argue, we could argue that when Joseph said, you meant these things for evil, but God meant them for good, he's talking about your and my salvation. Do you realize that? 
He is talking about that. Yes. And that's what we're going to go to in just a second. You're absolutely correct. We still have to ask why. When we get to the text this morning, going back to Acts chapter 11, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. And then from there, then you have those from Cyprus and Cyrene who speak to the Hellenists also. And what are they all doing? End of verse 20. Whether they're just speaking to the Jews or they're also speaking to the Hellenists, what are they doing? Preaching the Lord Jesus. Right? So what is Luke driving towards here when he says that they're scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen? What he's saying is the whole point of Stephen's persecution and stoning death is what? To ultimately and generally spread the gospel, the good news that Christ, and this answers the ultimate why, that God, that the Godhead completely would be what? Glorified. That's the point. And so we have three examples of it. One here, and then we're going to jump back to Acts chapter 8. Here, in Acts chapter 11, what's the point? If you were there and loved Stephen, you'd say, why? He's such a good guy. He loved Jesus. Right? I mean, if I may be completely vulnerable to you, I remember when I was in seminary. And I, 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 I'd fallen in love with this girl who was, uh, was a, a professor in the undergrad department. Her first name was Anne. I was crazy about the girl. And she dumped me like a bad habit. And I thought for sure we were going to get married. And I remember the day she dumped me, I jumped in my, my uh, yellow Volkswagen Super Beetle, and I drove up onto the Blue Ridge Parkway, and I went to this big overlook, and I sat there and I cried like a baby. But it wasn't all, all tears of sadness. There were some tears of anger. And I prayed. And you know how I prayed? I said, God, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. I've dedicated my life to you. I'm studying the scriptures. I'm, I'm, I'm investing my entire life in knowing the scriptures. And you do this to me? Is God being glorified in my prayer? Not even close. Exactly. What did I miss? I missed this. And isn't that easy to do? I missed it completely. What's going on here? In Acts chapter 11, what, is, what does Luke record? Stephen, persecuted, scattering, right? For what purpose? For the gospel to be spread. Ultimately for what, Tom? God's glory. Flip back over to chapter 8 of Acts. There's a consistency in the storyline. Starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> this is right after Stephen's been killed. He's been stoned. The very last three words of Acts chapter 7 is what? If you have an ESV. He fell asleep, which means he's dead. Stephen's now dead. A horrific death. Verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. That's an interesting introduction to chapter 8. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It goes on in verse uh, 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. There's no evidence before Stephen that Saul was persecuting Christians. You realize that? There's no evidence that Christians were being persecuted at all. We just saw in chapter 11, the persecution caused the gospel to go all the way up to Antioch, right? In chapter 11, all the way up to Antioch, as far north along the Mediterranean coast as you can go. The gospel is being preached, God is being glorified because of Stephen's death. In chapter 8, Stephen's death has a dramatically different effect, doesn't it? In Saul's life, right? Stephen's ministry and eventual death has a totally different effect in Saul's life. His ministry of the gospel causes Saul to chafe at the bit dramatically, doesn't it? He gets angry. 8-1, and Saul approved the execution. He's fired up, isn't he? He's so fired up that on that day, a great persecution arose, and Saul's at the head. That's the implication. He is going crazy. If you don't get it in verse 1, it's so great that at the end of verse 1, they're being scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church. We just read it. You get the idea that Saul is unglued, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ created such a hatred in Saul, didn't it? That he was absolutely unglued in hatred towards the church, towards the message of the gospel, towards the head of the church. Can't miss it. If someone's hating the church and attacking the church, who are they really attacking? The head of the church. Correct? He despises the gospel. It's crystallized in his thinking, and he is after with all his heart. How can anything good to come out of that? Right? Well, what happens one chapter later? This guy is so fired up. You know, you know the old phrase, know thine enemy? You think that maybe Saul was learning a little bit about what Christians are? Probably caricature-wise, but he's learning about Jesus, isn't he? He's learning about what the Christians believe about Jesus. Why? So he can identify them more easily and destroy them, correct? So he can have the right questions to ask to entrap them. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? And little does he know that he meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, right? And so what happens? Chapter 9. Stephen's proclamation and execution ultimately result in what? Saul's conversion, which is not the ultimate conclusion, is it? Because in light of that conversion, God takes Saul and he does what? He uses him to what? Proclaim the gospel, plant churches, and glorify God. Doesn't he? Know what happens? <clears throat> 
and then verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about what? Preaching the word. Now we already covered the text when we went through chapter 8, but there it is. They're preaching the word. When he says preaching the word, that means they're preaching what? The gospel. That means they're talking about Jesus, which means God is being glorified, right? He's being uplifted. His name is being proclaimed. He's being glorified. He's, his fame is being spread. And that's what, is, what, what we're talking about here. In chapter 11, when, 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 when Luke, just almost as an aside, but not really, says, all of this is because of Stephen's persecution and execution. What is he really saying? He's saying God's sovereignty has a purpose. God's sovereignty has a goal. God's sovereignty is driving towards a certain end. And because God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God, God's sovereignty always comes to its targeted fulfillment. What's the point of this text? What do we start out with? Well, we have these twists and turns in life, don't we? Maybe persecution. Some places in the world it is that way. Many places in the world, right? It may be other twists and turns that aren't, aren't because of active evil, but they're things that we weren't hoping for, we weren't planning for, we didn't want to have happen, right? And I look around our room here, we know it's the case. I look around, I joke about, about the router, Ken, but even that, is God sovereign over that? Yes! <laughs> you having to go through all the frustrations, Charles, when you had, when you had your, uh, uh, your own business, and it was driving you crazy at times, wasn't it? And ends weren't being met at all, right? Remember that? You with your cancer, Tom. And we can go on it. My mom with her Alzheimer's and all the rest. Whatever it is. We, we think about all the various, all the various events and circumstances and, 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 uh, and things that happen in our lives. It is actually really cheap just to sit there and say, why is this happening to me? Because left with that, it's a denial of God. Do you realize that? It's also really cheap and unhelpful to say, well, God is sovereign. It really is, if we leave it there. As true as that is. But the point of chapter 11, verse 19 with Stephen Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 and all, uh, Acts chapter 8, Stephen, all the rest of these things and everywhere else we can look. John exiled out to Isle of Patmos and we end up with the book of Revelation. Whatever it may be. What's the point of it all? The, the circumstances and events and everything that transpired in our lives. God, yes, is what? He's sovereign over those things. But it is really important that we, we don't leave it there. Instead, we say God is sovereign over this event for a reason and for a purpose. Or to put it in a different way, He has a goal in mind. He is, just like we know in the, in the scriptures, we called it, I mentioned it already, it is God's historical what? Redemptive story, right? Guess what? So is my life. And so is yours. It is a historical, redemptive 
story. God is after his glory. And he is glorified. How? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's general. Because it has all different facets and all different ways it shows itself. But the point that we have to see out of Acts chapter 11, verse 19, and Acts chapter 8, and Joseph, and all the rest that we see, all these different passages we can look at everywhere, is what? In every one of them, and all of Paul's horrors that he went through, his classic example, Philippians, we'll go all the way back to Philippians. Paul says, I want you to know these things have, are the best things that possibly could have happened. Being thrown into prison, being beaten, and all the rest. Best thing that could have happened. Why? Because as a result of me being beaten and thrown into prison unjustly, he doesn't say unjustly, but it was, other people have what? Started to proclaim the gospel, started to proclaim the glories of Jesus. Is that not his goal? Isn't it? And while I'm in prison, I've been chained to the Praetorian Guard, I've been able to do what? Preach the gospel. Proclaim the glories of Jesus to them. And as a result of that, end of chapter 4, those praetorian guards, some of them have been saved, and now they have been proclaiming the gospel into Caesar's very household. And so, oh, by the way, chapter 4, those of Caesar's household send their greetings. That means what? Some of them got saved because remember, persecution is going on. People at Sergeant's household wouldn't say, hey, we send our greetings. They'd be saying what? If they're not saved, they're saying, we're coming for you. Instead, they say, hey, we send our greetings. See, God's after something. When your boss mistreats you, when you don't have an income, when cancer comes, when, when, you get the coronavirus <laughs> to work off the modern modern news, today's news. We run around fear of something that God is sovereign over. Right? Think about it. Run around in fear over something God is sovereign over and is therefore a purpose. Right? And that purpose, if I may just work with today's news, the purpose for the coronavirus is what? The gospel. That's what, it's, that's what it's there for. Yes. In all of its intricacies, it ultimately glorifies God. Absolutely. But it's for his purposes. And it brings glory to him in some way. The issue is, the issue is not will it. The issue is, do I embrace this truth? And does my life evidence that? I can't tell how many this week, how many Christians I heard moaning and groaning about the collapse of the stock market this week. And I'm like, is God sovereign over that? There's the sovereignty issue, right? Is God sovereign over that? Yes. But for a purpose? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. What purpose? Well, it's multifaceted depending on the person, but ultimately it's for the purpose of what? Bringing 
the gospel which brings glory to God. I can't tell you how many people who name the name of Jesus who are much more jacked up over po political things than they are over the gospel. Is God sovereign over who's going to be our next president? The Bible says he sets up kings and tears down kings, right? Because he says, and he says the heart of the king is where? In the hand of God. And I see so many people getting so worked up. So many people getting so worked up. It's like, what are you worked up over? Is God sovereign? And is he sovereign for purpose? And if he's sovereign for a purpose, then who should we be in light of that? Now the answer I'm hearing from a lot of people is, we need to vote for Trump then. And I say, no, we need to what? <laughs> Preach the gospel, thank you. We need to proclaim Christ. Because <laughs> he's far better, is he not? Is he not far better than whether you have a Republican or Democrat in president? Is he not far better? Okay, now I'm going to shake some people's worlds. I hope not anybody here. But is he not far better than whether America exists or not? I hope so. Because if he's not, eat, drink, and be merry. Because why? Because tomorrow we die. That doesn't mean we don't, we don't focus on what we think is right and good and, and try to do something right and good, but for what purpose again? To glorify God. Right? And how do we glorify God? Spray the gospel. That's the point. That's the point. And what an amazing thing that God has saved us for that. That he is mercifully, all the way back to Genesis 3, has been working his plan and has never failed once. And it's all coming to fruition just as he planned Many of those plans I can't know, right? Because he is, he is all-knowing and I'm definitely not. And the older I get, the more convinced I, I become of how little I know. But he's working it according to his plan and it's coming to a grand conclusion that he's promised, hasn't he? Jim and I were talking about it before, before, before the message, before church this morning. He's bringing it together. And it's going to be exactly how he's designed it, how he's planned it. What a great opportunity we have to live within that beautiful design of God and to revel in the one who has designed it all and is actively bringing it all to a conclusion. Wow, is that a God worthy of worship? And is that not a God worthy of praise? So if I could just encourage us with anything... It is easy to sell God short, isn't it? It is really easy to sell his plan short and to ignore it. Or to become just fatalist and say, well, God's sovereign. And miss all, all that is there for us to glorify God in. It is specified. I look around. Whether it's a router, whether it's cancer, whether it's money not coming in, whether it's a lung disease you'll never get rid of, whether it is anything, anything, anything. It could be persecution as well. It's there. <laughs> but God is sovereign over all.
All those things exist for one purpose, generally speaking. They all exist for one purpose. It is the gospel, and it is for God's glory. When we settle for less, we always settle for less than God. And we find ourselves, to quote what I said to Jim earlier, we find ourselves seeking sustenance. And the sustenance we're seeking is not the food that Jesus talks about. Does that make sense? Because sad to say, Jesus said to his disciples, when they said, are you hungry? Let's get some food. And he said, I have food you know nothing about. Post Acts 1, the disciples knew what he was talking about. And it was evident, wasn't it? And that was by the Spirit. Let us seek and pray that the Spirit will open our hearts to see our lives and the intricacies of our lives, the intricacies of the events that transpire on the news every day, and in our friends and our relatives and everybody else, that we will see it, that this is God at work for one purpose, for his glory, for the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We too often settle way too short. And we find ourselves being driven here, being driven there because of the events of our lives. And yet the thing that is not there is the gospel. And yet the thing that is not there is your glory. We moan and groan. We complain. We gripe. We act as if it's hopeless. Empty. Answerless. And yet you have proclaimed the most amazing answer. And you have given us the most amazing privilege and honor of proclaiming the one who has loved us so much and continues to do so. So help us. Help us to be reminded throughout the events of today and then Monday and then Tuesday and Wednesday and this week and this month and this year and the remainder of our lives that we exist for you and we exist for your glory. Because the chief end of man is clearly to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is in the midst of life in a fallen world. In the midst of a life lived in a fallen body. That you are lifted up, that you are glorified. In your name I pray. Amen.